This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision. Today, it's the story of a prosperous Latin American country with a new, astonishingly young president and a thirst for change. Chile's new president-elect, Gabriel Boric, has addressed jubilant supporters after becoming the country's youngest ever leader. At his victory rally, he promised to expand social rights for Chileans while maintaining fiscal responsibility. Today, we can be more sure than before of certain things. Firstly, that economic growth based on deep social inequality is fundamentally flawed. It's only with social cohesion that we can advance towards truly sustained development for every Chilean family. The World Bank ranks Chile as a high-income economy. But despite being a stable democracy, Chileans have demanded and won through massive popular protest changes to the way their society runs to finally get rid of foundations laid by the military dictatorship of the 1970s and 80s. As we'll hear, these social pressures are behind the election of Gabriel Boric. Unlike many of the political elite, Boric grew up a long way from the capital, Santiago, in Punta Arenas, in the southernmost tip of Chile, Patagonia. Well, Gabriel Boric is a really interesting political actor in Chile. I'm Valentina Rosas, a political scientist from Chile, and I'm the director of Tenemos que hablar de Chile, which is a Spanish for We Need to Talk About Chile at Citizen Participation Initiative. Just to give you an idea, Chile is a really centralized country and people had the perception that the political elite, it's really homogeneous. But Gabriel Boric come from Punta Arenas, which is a really southern city in, in Chile, that it's below the Patagon and ice fields. Uh, so it's really, really southern. And that has become a really important part of his narrative. He come from a different place and he wants different things for Chile. Some people say that he's too young or that he lacks political experience, but I will say that it's not true. He's a former law student in Universidad de Chile. He was the head of the student union and a really, really important student leader. He has won every election that he has run, even when he was a secondary student. And he has been already a congressman for two periods. And it's a really, really popular Politician. I would say that not probably presidential materials. Just one year ago, not too many people would say that he will be probably the president of Chile, but now here we are and he has become the Chile's youngest ever president. Boric was active in student politics even in high school, but he established himself on a bigger stage when he moved to Santiago for university. In 2011, he came to attention by winning election as the president of the University of Chile Student Federation, or FETCH, against a popular incumbent. So one of the first things that gave him that leadership role was when he became president of the FETCH, the Student Federation of the University of Chile. I'm Beatrice Garcia Nice, program coordinator with the Latin American program at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in Washington, D.C. And the fact that he beat Camila Vallejo, who, like I said, was a very established leader, was a very popular leader, and the fact that she stayed on during his tenure as his vice president also highlighted his 
particular way of doing politics and the way that he brings people together. So I think one of the first steps was that he is a very charismatic mm-hmm. leader. He is a very hands-on, I'll be with the people. And he learns from his mistakes. And he's shown that ever since the leadership that he had at Fetch. We moved forward and in 2014, he became one of the famous four, which were four student leaders that were elected to Congress. And during his time in Congress for two periods, he highlighted the needs of younger population of Chileans that said, we understand that the country is seen as a gem in Latin America. We understand that there's development, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we all have the opportunity to have part of that developing nation and that development and economy that everybody seems to think that Chileans have. And he was very good at working with that message and with representing not only poor people in Chile, I would say, but the younger generations that didn't live through the Pinochet regime and that didn't see it as a, you know, we're better now. He really conveyed the message of Chile needs to change. The election of these young student leaders to Congress in 2014 was the beginning of a generational change in Chilean politics, a shift away from the political generation of the Pinochet dictatorship of the 70s and 80s. He's the youngest president ever in Chile, and this is a sharp contrast with many years of a political elite that perpetuated itself since the return to democracy and that did not produce a generation to replace it. I'm Claudia Heiss. I'm a PhD in political science and I'm the head of the political science undergraduate program at the University of Chile. So we've had the same leaders in the first years of the transition, particularly. We had the same political leaders that were already in politics before even the military coup. Many ministers in the Concertación governments, Presidents like President Frey or President Lagos were already active in politics before the return of democracy. People talk about the 1980s generation as a lost generation, which is my generation, basically. So Chile sort of skipped one generation in politics, and now the very young people took over with a very different view of politics, with a very critical evaluation of the center-left years in power, the center-left held power for most of the last 30 years of democracy. 24 years were under center-left governments, and these governments did not produce structural changes regarding issues like inequality, the model of development, and, and other things that this new generation was very critical about. I think that the interesting thing is that Boric comes from a generation that was and is still very critical of political parties and of traditional politics. And so in addition to be very young, he comes from social movements that particularly in in its beginnings had a very, very strong position against political parties and trying to lead politics through social movements with grassroots movements. Student activism has been part of Chile's political life from the so-called Penguin Revolution of 2006, when high school students went on strike against Chile's privatised education system, a legacy of the Pinochet dictatorship. We have a very important student protest. It's called the Pinwin Protest in 2006. 
And it's called Pinwin because students that were protesting, their uniforms were white and, and black. They started this movement. They started saying, why is education in Chile private? So that those questions started arising in this Penguin Revolution in 2006. And then in 2011, that's when student protests really, really make a dent in Chilean politics. And this is where we have, you know, Camila Vallejo. This is when we have Gabriel Boric. This is when we have Giorgio Jackson. All these personalities now that are going to be part of this incoming government on March 11, and they highlight the disparity in classes. They highlight the problem that Chileans see that most Latin Americans thought that that wasn't the case. Chile's superior education is free, but you can only get it if you paid your way through middle and high school. And like many services, such as water, electricity, the fact that Chile's education is private really, really makes a dent as to who has access to this excellent, free, public, superior education, who goes to university and who goes to the best universities in Chile. In October 2019, a series of massive demonstrations broke out in Santiago and spread throughout the country. The simmering tensions between Chileans and authorities have exploded. A weekend of violence with a damage bill estimated in the millions of dollars was replaced by thousands of peaceful protesters filling Santiago's CBD, banging drums and waving signs for change. But the armed forces still pushed back, firing water cannons, tear gas and warning shots into the crowd. A state of emergency has been declared in several Chilean cities and the armed forces have been handed control. It began with high school students as a protest against an increase in subway fares. It escalated with riots, looting and extensive damage to the rail system. Over one million people marched in Santiago to demand the resignation of President Piñera. It was of a much higher scale than previous social movements. But the fact is that we've had social movements very active and a lot of contentious politics or people in the streets protesting for at least a decade. As I said, 2011 was very impressive. And we've had, in addition to the student movement, many social movements in many other areas, mostly dealing with social rights. But 2019 was different. It was not organized by any particular interest, by any particular social movement. It was a general repudiation of both the political system and the, the economy or the lack of social protection summarized in the word dignity. So people protested and they said, we are fed up, we don't want this anymore, and we want dignity. This movement started with a very small increase in the subway fare, and it was the triggering element that people rejected. And when, when some students, again, complained that the subway fare should not be raised again because public transportation in Chile is one of the most expensive in the world, the authorities said that it was technically impossible not to do this increase because it was technically untenable to maintain the, the subway price. And so high school students started jumping the turnstiles and not paying the subway fare. And, and then the police tried to intervene. And in the end, there was this burning of subway station, a very, very terrible destruction of public infrastructure. And really, life became impossible in Chile. The schools had to stop. There was no transportation. The downtown was 
destroyed by the clashes between the protesters and the police. And we had a, something that looked very similar to a, really to a civil war. And so in the end, what happened is that in mid-November, the political parties decided to open an institutional path to overcome this crisis uh, through a constitution-making process. And this is what is known as the November 15 agreement, November 15 in 2019. And this agreement said we will hold the plebiscite, we will create a constitutional assembly to write a new constitution and to change the rules of the game. Chile is well known for its rapid economic growth, great macroeconomic balance, political stability, prosperity in general. We have this speech that we have talking about ourselves, that we were the jowers of Latin America and oasis in this region. But that growth didn't reach all Chilean middle class, was especially struggling with high prices, low wages. We have a, a privatized retirement system that leaves many old people in, in bitter poverty. So in October of 2019, we have just a four cent increase in the subway fare. And that was the tipping point that set off an initial demonstration of contents that show us that we have many, many topics that we were not talking about, that it seems they were hidden. We used to say that it was bad manners to talk about politics. And at that moment, we realized there were so many topics to talk about that they were not talking about, maybe because as something that we inherit from the dictatorship, I'm not really sure why. But at that moment, we have this massive, massive protest across the country that I would say that was the most important one since the end of the dictatorship. It is true that there was a lot of violence and many Chileans were very shocking about it. But I will say that it's also very interesting to mention that at the same time that we were having a lot of violence on the street, People were talking with the neighbors. We have uh, like spontaneous meetings in the neighborhood, in the companies, in the universities, in the schools. Chileans were talking and trying to listen to each other. What is happening? What we need to change? How the politicians should address this? So it was a really complicated outbreak because of the violence. But at the same time, it gave us the idea that we have this civilized way to treat our difference and we can have institutional ways to address this need of change. And that is how now we ended up in our constitutional process. You're listening to Radio National's Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips. You can always find us on the ABC Listen app and catch up on programs you might have missed, including our recent programs on Russia, NATO, China and the invasion of Ukraine. Gabriel Boric, Chile's new young president, has just taken the reins in a country hungry for change, wanting a more equitable society in one of Latin America's most prosperous countries. And Chileans see changing their constitution as the key to a better society. The constitution, created during the Pinochet dictatorship, set in place institutional structures that allowed his heirs to constrain the decisions any future government could make. The resolution of the 2019 protests was the government's agreement to hold a referendum on the need for a new constitution. The referendum was held in October last year, with almost 80% voting for change. 
it's very unusual that people protest about political rules. People protest about the lack of services or the lack of access to health or to pensions. People protest for bad salaries, but this time people protested for that and also for the rules of the game, the political rules. And I think this is because we have an anomalous political system that remains attached to its dictatorial past, that retains many of the anti-democratic features of our transition to democracy. So Chile recovered democracy in 1990, but Pinochet, the dictator, the military dictator that uh, led the country between 1973 and, uh, and 1990 after a military coup that overthrew the Salvador Allende government, he wanted to institutionalize some aspects of what he saw as a better political system in a constitution. And so he wrote in 1980 a constitution that he published as a decree. So it was a law decree in a completely undemocratic context with all the rules that he and his allies liked. For instance, there is a very strong clause protecting the private property of water in the constitution. And this is very unpopular. So no democratic constitution in Chile would ever have been able to entrench in this way the private property of water rights. But he did it. And this has been a very intense aspect of debate. And actually, two years ago, there was a bill presented to Congress to try to change that, to remove this protection of private property of water from the constitution. The bill received... 24 votes in the Senate in favor, so 24 senators wanted to remove it, and only 12 to defend the dictatorial clause. Those 12 were able to maintain the norm because, in addition to putting the rules, he protected these rules through very high supramajoritarian quorums to change the constitution. So he put the norm of the water there, and then he said, you need two-thirds to change that. And two-thirds in the Senate in this case was 29 votes, so 24 votes were not enough, and only 12 votes were enough to defend the maintenance of a clause that was very completely uh, against the popular will in the, in the first place. So this shows you how we've had for 30 years entrenched in the Constitution things that were not put there by the people of Chile, and all of this made sure that the right, the hairs of the Pinochet dictatorship, could have veto power of, over any changes performed by future governments. So we have, we've had 30 years of a very strong immobilism through these undemocratic clauses. Constitutional reform in Chile has taken its first step this weekend with the country electing 155 people to draft a new document to replace one that was imposed during a military dictatorship. Chile's president, Sebastián Piñera, is urging voters to go to the polls despite coronavirus restrictions. Activist groups have mobilised in hopes of enshrining equality for women, protections for the environment and the right to obtain an abortion. Conservatives hope to maintain a dominant private sector and impose rules, making it hard to pass reform in the legislature. So I can tell you a little bit more about what Chileans hope to get from this new constitutional convention. The main issue that there was with the current Chilean constitution, right, that they'll vote out, is that that it was based on Augusto Pinochet's regime. And it was basically a way that the regime justified authoritarian rule. And the way that they justify their authoritarian rule was by modernizing Chile and an open market economy, what many have called hypercapitalism. 
an overall perspective of the problem that we see with the current Chilean constitution. What the Constitutional Convention is trying to do is to rewrite and include all of these new necessities and all of these new paradigms that Chileans face as to how they live, the rights that they have. You know, there's there's no doubt that Chile is a democracy, but they do want to change and rewrite the country's constitution so that it includes a gender parity, it includes indigenous peoples, it includes indigenous rights, land rights specifically, so that it includes Chile's climate agenda, which they're very proud to boast, so that they include the way that they're going to go about their natural resources, which are very, very important for Chile's GDP. You know, Chile is a mining country. It's a lithium country, and lithium is one of the minerals that's going to be in our future in this climate conversion that we're seeing. So it's those things that this constitution is trying to achieve. A constitution doesn't necessarily target every single issue that the country is having issues with, but it's a legal framework as to how to move forward. And many feel that in rewriting this constitution, they're taking up too much time in details and not the overall picture. So that is something that we're going to see in the months coming because they do have a two-year limit and they're behind schedule. They're not necessarily fighting, but there are a lot of competing priorities that the right comes in, the left comes in, indigenous people. They're giving a louder voice to regions. They're decentralizing a little bit as to speak as to how the government is organized. There's also the fact that it requires two thirds of approval for everything that happens or everything that is changed. There is this caveat, there is this fear that it's focusing on too many details as opposed on the general legal framework of what a constitution is known to be. The 2019 protests jump-started Gabriel Boric's presidential run. And although he won, his opponent was an extreme right-wing candidate of a Trumpian stripe, and some consider that he may not have won against a more moderate right-winger. Chile doesn't have a two-party political system like Australia. There are many parties in the Congress, and government happens through building coalitions. And despite being president, Boric does not command a majority of votes. Now in the Congress, we have more than 20 parties. It's probably the most diverse Congress that we have had also since the end of the dictatorship. So the political landscape, it's changing in many different ways. It's not going just to the left. We have different coalition also that are taking part of this political debate and new issues that are being discussed. We have a really, really important part of the Congress that are from the right wing, so he will need a lot of negotiation and skill to be able to address the issues that he promised in the campaign. He had proved that in the past he has those abilities, but as I said before, he also brought together the different parties that are part of the left wing. That is not simple. I will say that even his own coalition will be one of the challenge for his government, not only 
versus the right wing. Also, the difference between the left wing will be something very complicated to maintain the cohesion of his coalition. Boric will face a Congress that is equally center-left and right, and he does not have a very strong support for radical reforms. And so I think this, this is one element that has pushed the agenda to moderate its uh, ambitions, to become more centrist and to try to get the support of the center and of the center left, because Boric knows that he can do it alone and he can do it with his uh, strong supporters. He needs the center and may, even with the center, he may not be able to pass some of the things he would like to because the Congress is tied. One very important thing is tax reform. I think particularly regarding very wealthy productive sectors in Chile, like mining. I think increasing taxes for mining companies and for other companies which have benefited from tax exemptions will be a priority. And this is in tune with his general goal of reducing inequality. The agenda, the Boric agenda has a lot to do with strengthening social services and the social network and also reducing inequality. And all of that requires funding and funding will not be very abundant, will not be very good in his government because in the last two years of the pandemic, the right-wing government really spent a lot. Really, the public spending in Chile increased incredibly in 2021 and, and still in 2022, the government that is leaving, that is leaving power on March 11, is still approving bills to increase public spending. And so he will need to push the brake and to, to stop a little bit the public spending, which goes completely against all his promises. Chile is known for its copper and for its lithium reserves. It has almost 40% of the world's lithium. And it is a challenge in the world where we're trying to move away for traditional extractive industries such as oil and copper and such. So lithium it's one of the main materials, if not the main material, to produce lithium batteries. But the extraction requires a lot of water. And water is a big issue in Chile because the region that it's at, it's very dry. And the second issue is that water is privatized. So how much is that going to cost? You know, is the government going to change this privatization laws that it has? And if so, how is it going to affect it? Most Chileans and the government itself will not necessarily steer away from it because it has a very important input to the country's GDP. But Chile is also one of the leaders in Latin America and the world when it comes to their turquoise agenda that combines their green agenda and their ocean agenda, their blue agenda. So trying to figure that out is going to be a challenge for him and something that he said he's going to put a lot of attention because of the importance that it has in the national GDP. Now, there's also the challenge that he has a divided Congress. Like I said, the left won, but the right did not disappear. And it's a very strong right. I think that he did a really good job with his cabinet. Many people were very nervous that it was going to be a leftist or even communist heavy cabinet, but he did a really good job in naming certain people as to balance it. An example of this is that he named Mario Marcel 
is the current president of the Central Bank and the future minister of the Treasury. And Mario Marcel has been one of the most recognized figures in Chile for Chile's economic stability. So the fact that he is included in the cabinet, that he's going to lead the ministry of the Treasury, that he decided to be part of Boric's cabinet is also very, very telling. But he does come into a divided Congress, a country with a new constitution, and with the fact that there's still a lot of discontent and many people have very high hopes on his four years in government. Beatriz Garcia-Nice from the Latin American program at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. The other guests were Claudia Heiss from the University of Chile and Valentina Rosas from the Pontifical Catholic University in Santiago. Simon Branthwaite is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. I'm Kerry Phillips. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.